0: Welcome to Soundprint's Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Soundprints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushavel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Soundprints for the week of February 6, 2022. These events are on the KCB Zoom line. Join them by using your computer, cell phone, or landline and dialing 669 900 6833, enter the code 862 KCB Next Generation is the chapter of the Kentucky Council of the Blind for members under 40 as well as others who wish to be supportive of the efforts of that group. NextGen will hold its February business meeting on February 10 at 8 p.m. As always, meetings are open and everyone is welcome. It's time for bingo at the GLCB roundabout. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites everyone to come and play on Friday, February 11, from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Grab your board and join us for an evening of games and winners. The next Kentucky Council of the Blind... The next Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision Peer Support call is on Wednesday, February 16 at 8 p.m. By popular demand, we'll be learning how to enter contacts into our smartphones and we'll discover how contacts can help us use our phones more efficiently. This month, the Tri-State Library users is reading Rat Race by Dick Francis, available from both Bard and Bookshare. Be sure to race to read this book and join us for the book club and business meeting on Saturday, February 19 at 11 a.m. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind invites everyone to its social hour on Wednesdays from 2 to 3 p.m. Central Time, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Sometimes there's a speaker, but there's always good conversation. The Zoom number for this call is is 669-900-6833, and the code is 763-689-4411. The passcode, should you need it, is 25852. The Kentucky Talking Book Library will hold its next book club meeting on Tuesday, February 15, at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The February selection is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. For more details or to be placed on an email list to receive future information about the book club, call the library at 800-372-2968. The following announcement is from the Bluegrass Council of the Blind. O&M Clinic coming to Louisville February 19 and 20. The Bluegrass Council of the Blind is partnering with the University of Kentucky Visually Impaired Program, the Kentucky School for the Blind, and the Kentucky Office of Vocational Rehabilitation to offer an orientation and mobility clinic, which will offer a variety of workshops around the state to help fill one of the largest gaps in services for people who are blind or who have low vision. We are recruiting participants in the Louisville or surrounding area who are interested in participating in an O&M assessment and basic O&M instruction. This workshop will take place on the Kentucky School for the Blind campus, 1867 Frankfort Avenue in Louisville, and will offer two workshops, one on Saturday, February 19, and the other on Sunday, February 20. We can accept up to 10 participants for each one-day workshop, which offers two options and two sessions each day. Option 1, assessment. Participants we are looking for would be two adults for the morning session and two adults for the afternoon session each day. Each participant would need to commit to a three-hour time slot for assessment and training. Lunch will be provided if you would like to join us for lunch before or after your session. These sessions are most appropriate for individuals who are blind or have low vision and have had little to no instruction in orientation and mobility techniques. The tentative schedule may include 9 a.m. to noon, Session 1, Assessments, two adult participants who are blind or have a vision impairment, are needed to work with the UK Orientation and Mobility Program students to be assessed by the class, during which the university students will review medical information provided by the participant from their eye care professional, including vision acuity, field of vision, diagnosis, and any other information provided by the eye care professional. 2. Ask the participant a series of questions to assist with determining the level of instruction needed. 3. Observe the participant as they navigate various environments to determine their current skills and needs. 4. Offer the participant specific instruction to learn basic orientation and mobility skills, at least 30 minutes of instruction. 12 to 1 p.m. is lunch. Lunch and Human Guide Technique Instruction Those who attend the morning session are welcome to stay for lunch, and those attending the afternoon session are welcome to come early for lunch and some basic instruction on human guide techniques. This is especially helpful to the individual and their companions with whom they live or travel. 1-4 to p.m. Session 2 A Repeat of Session 1 Option two, basic training. In addition to the assessments, we are welcoming up to three additional participants each session who would appreciate a 25 to 45-minute training session on basic O&M skills using a white cane. These participants would need to arrive no later than 11 a.m. for the morning session and no later than 3 p.m. for the afternoon session. No prior experience is necessary. A white cane is needed. If you do not have one, please note that on the application form, and we may be able to provide one if an appropriate cane is available. Please note, participation is on a first-come, first-served basis, and all who apply may not be accommodated in this workshop. Please note, K-12 students will also be included in this and other workshops and arrangements for these students can be made through their TVI or by contacting us for more information. Additional workshops will be planned this spring based on need. For more information, contact Teresa Thomas, Bluegrass Council of the Blind at 859 259-1834, extension 3, or email them at info at bcbky.org. One more note, it is necessary to complete an O&M clinic intake form in order to participate in these workshops. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind has for many years participated in the Neighborhood Bicycle and Pedestrian Access Committee, which is a joint effort of several neighborhoods in Louisville. We are pleased to report that one of our long-time efforts at the intersection of Payne and Clifton Avenues in the Clifton area has finally come to fruition. The following announcement is from Works Week, a publication of uh, Louisville Metro. It says, Recently, Metro Public Works reworked an intersection at Payne Street and South Clifton Avenue in District 9. The traffic-calming island on the southwest corner of the intersection was removed in favor of a new straighter roadway path and a brand-new four-way stop. The intersection was also updated with ADA compliant sidewalk ramps, detectable warning pavers, and painted marked crosswalks, another seemingly small public works project which will greatly improve mobility and quality of life in the neighborhood. Special thanks on this project to Bill Hollander, who is our retiring Metro Council person that represents District 9. And this announcement comes from Clark Rackville, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs in the ACB office in Arlington, Virginia. The Federal Communications Commission, FCC, as a result of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, CVAA, has jurisdiction over technology that can play video content, as well as display-only video monitors and projectors. Thus, technologies such as televisions, cable set-top boxes, computer monitors, digital cameras, and other digital apparatuses must include accessible user interfaces for people who are blind and visually impaired. In December 2021, Peloton Interactive, the connected fitness company, Filed a limited waiver petition at the FCC seeking to exclude their equipment from the accessible user interface requirement for eighteen months. More information on the FCC rules and the Peloton waiver petition can be seen at www.fcc.gov/fcc-seeks-comment. Pelotons P E L O T O N S petition P E T I T I O N dash Waiver W A I V E R dash Accessible A C C E S S I B L E dash User Dash Interface Dash Rules In 2020 A C B worked with Peloton to enable the Google Talkback Screen. Reader on the Peloton Bike and Bike Plus to make the user interfaces of their products more accessible. It is our desire that Peloton continue down the path of inclusion and accessibility to make all these products accessible for the blind community. On Monday, January 24, ACB filed comments with the FCC regarding Peloton's petition for a limited waiver of the accessible user interface and digital apparatus requirements of the CVAA. We oppose the 18-month waiver time period and urge the FCC to clearly state that Peloton's equipment and other connected exercise equipment that plays and controls video content falls directly under the FCC's jurisdiction. For more information on this subject Contact Clark Rackfall at the ACB National Office in Arlington, Virginia. The phone number is 202-467-5081, or you can email Clark at advocacy, A-D-V-O-C-A-C-Y, at acb.org. One very hot topic around ACB and the blind community this week is the accessibility of COVID at-home tests. The government is providing free at-home tests, but they are not accessible. Kim Charlson, immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind, visits with us on page two to talk about these issues and some solutions that are currently available. Kim also discusses some other COVID-related accessibility issues, so be sure to listen to her presentation. Every ten years, the U.S. government conducts a census, accounting of people who live in the United States. Then, about two years later, comes redistricting. It affects small towns, cities, states, and congressional districts. But what is redistricting? Why does it matter, and how does it affect each of us? Redistricting was the topic of the February 4 quarterly meeting of the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind. On page 3, Debbie Dethridge introduces our 9th District Councilman, Bill Hollander, and he gives us a concise overview of how redistricting works. There was much more information shared on this topic, and we hope to bring you a more in-depth look at this presentation on a future Soundprints. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future shows. Give us a call at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at
1: kentucky-acb.org. Page two. I'm speaking with Kim Charleston. Kim hasn't been on Prince for a long time, but she used to be on a lot because Kim is the immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind from Watertown, Massachusetts. And she has uh, been involved in many, many different kinds of advocacy over the years. And uh, we're talking about an advocacy issue today, uh, one that has become all of a sudden at the forefront of a lot of our thoughts uh, since shortly before the first of the year uh, that relate to home testing uh, uh, for COVID-19, and it seems like there's always something new every week or every couple of weeks that relates to this, but we've asked Kim to be with us today because uh, Kim, shortly before the first of the year, appeared in an article, was quoted in an article in the New York Times, and um, she has been really involved and a lot of the advocacy related to this. And we've invited her to come and tell us how this has all come about and where it is at this point in time. I'm sure there will be other incidents, other things that have to do with this that are coming up. But um, but let's find out where we are related to this right now. Welcome, Kim. We're so glad you're here.
2: Thank you, Carla. So the, the whole issue, as Carla said, about um, Accessibility, or in this case, lack of accessibility, for the COVID home test or the COVID rapid antigen tests that are all all the rage and talking in the news about you know, what's going on and that kind of thing. So yes, it kind of started. Although access to home testing is is a much bigger issue, and we can kind of circle back to that. Um, but with respect to COVID. It, it did sort of launch itself following the New York Times interview where the reporter interviewed, you know, several, um, individuals about access to, to, um, the results of a COVID test and the fact that for blind and low vision people, the tests are not accessible because they rely on a color change, um, in your, in your results. Um, when, you, when you line everything up. And there's currently, I believe there's nine different types of COVID home tests that are on the market. And they range from the fairly inexpensive, where you have to put a couple drops of liquid into a tube, and then you do your swab of your nasal passage, and um, then you slide the swab into the tube, and you wait 10 or 15 minutes, and the color will change um, depending on what positive color is and what negative color is. So the directions are fairly complex for these tasks because you have to do everything in the right sequence, in the right order, at the right time, and of course, the directions are not accessible. So the question from the New York Times reporter was, what do you do? And that was the first question. So. So I'll talk about what we can do right now. I mean, there's the obvious solutions. If, you know, what would we do today if someone handed us the COVID test and said, here, you need to take this test by tomorrow? Well, we might turn to a family member or a friend. That's probably just about one of the few options that we have as blind individuals to, to take a, a home test. Um, those, you know, while there, it's, Helpful to have side of people that can help, but from time to time, not everybody might have that. Or um, also, the other fact is that you may not want to expose others that you care about um, to the fact that you were feeling symptoms that may be COVID. So you're concerned about their health and safety as well. Um, so so th- so that's a possibility, but you know maybe one that's not quite as high up on the on the list. So there are a couple options for people today to to get help and support. I mean the fundamental principle here is the tests are not really independently accessible. You can't do them um, independently and get the results from start to finish for a variety of reasons. The instructions aren't in an accessible format. They require color to to determine your diagnosis. But there's a couple services that are out there that can help you if you have access to a smartphone. So the first one would be um, the IRA service, um, and you don't have to be a paid subscriber to use their COVID um, package right now. They have a special offer. Anyone who needs assistance with taking or reading the results of a COVID home test, they they will allow 30 minutes of time at no charge, but you have to be set up with the app on your phone and be a registered explorer as what they call them. So, so IRA is available to anyone who has a cell phone. Agents have been trained to to guide people through the test process um, and to read the results. You probably, most tests have like a 15 or 20 minute wait. So you probably would end up coming back with a different agent to read your results. Um, There's also a service for um, Be My Eyes, which is again another app with your smartphone. And Be My Eyes has a category of support with professional organizations. Um, ACB is a a Be My Eyes um, provider where you can click on, um, you know, get more information from experts in the field, and ACB is one of those. And the, the organization that is providing support for COVID test results and assistance is Accessible Pharmacy Services for the Blind. And that's a a mail order pharmacy service that provides prescriptions with accessible labels, and they also provide some diagnostic assistance and support for um, COVID home testing. So that's another really good resource to um, to have in your in your back pocket if you need it. But both of those obviously only are usable by people who have access to smartphones. So that became the next question from the reporter about what do you do? Um, and that became sort of the, the hue and cry from ACB and from NFB. We've had some conversations together and we've kind of collaborated on our advocacy approach um, to, to want to put the pressure on the government because um, in, in January, in early January, an announcement came from the White House that a program was being set up for anyone in the United States who wanted to get um, home tests sent to them. You're, um, there's a program going on with a website and a phone number where you can call in and you can order four accessible home test kits for COVID, for, for doing testing. So, a lot of places these days, as you well know, um, require either, you know, a positive or a, they don't require a positive, they require a negative test to be able to to get in, to, to take a trip on an airplane, to go to a, an event or something like that. So, the use of COVID home tests has really um, mushroomed in the last, I would say, two to three months where... People are, are needing to do it if they have to take a trip, if they can't get to a doctor's office and get um, get a, a test with negative results and show that proof of negative test. So the home tests have really filled that gap so that everybody wasn't going to the doctor because there's different kinds of tests for COVID. As most of you probably know, there's the home tests and there's another there's are several different types, but the next most common would be what they call PCR tests, which require um, that, you ha- that you get a swab and then the tests go off to a lab to be processed. And then the results generally are posted on a website or you might be notified by a phone call. So that requires more involvement and engagement and, and it takes more time to get one of those tests. So, so, the home tests are really what has become the option for most people who need a, um, a test result for some purpose, besides diagnosing if they have COVID or not, so they can go, go somewhere or take a trip. Um, so, the government program um, started up, I would say, maybe around um, the 20th or so of January, where you can um, go to a website. And you can fill out a a simple form and request that you be sent for um, COVID home tests. And I'm going to give you the phone number and the website right now and then we'll repeat it at the end because I think this is useful. Um, The website, I will say, um, was one of the easiest websites to fill out the form that I've ever used. It was totally accessible. No glitches, no tricks, no you know little hidden jewels that sometimes can mess you up with a screen reader. It was incredibly straightforward and easy to fill out, and very simple so um one request per household is um is the one of the rules that they will they will send four tests and to one individual so um So note that if you live in an apartment complex or anything where there's multiple people, um, multiple units at the same address, you need to be absolutely sure you include your unit number to make your address unique because if you just put the street address and no unit number and someone else in your building ordered tests, then your order will be rejected because they'll say someone from your household has already ordered. So, be sure to put your apartment number to make your order unique. So, to get um, the four tests that are sent out by the U.S. Postal Service fairly quickly, I would say within 10 to 12 days, you should get them. Um, You would go to covidtests.gov. So, that's C-O-V as in Victor, I-D as in David, T as in Tom, E-S, and if you don't use a website or a computer, there is a phone call option that you can do as well. And that would be one eight hundred two three two zero two three three. 232 233 So that's one eight hundred two three two zero two three three, 232 233 you can order your four free tests um, through that program. Now what happened, um, kind of simultaneously, this has all been happening in the month of January, basically, um, uh, after some communication with um, the National Federation of the Blind, ACB, and NFB have kind of collaborated on um, reaching out to the government to say, you know something needs to be done. These home tests are not accessible for people who are blind and visually impaired. And both organizations, um, ACB on January 21st, sent a letter to the Biden administration outlining um, the need for accessible um, accessibility for COVID home-based tests. Um, and then the other criteria in our um, request was we need some kind of an immediate interim program until the tests can be made accessible that will provide blind and low vision individuals access to to rapid um, diagnostic testing or home based testing, which would include um, setting having some kind of a state program or community-based public health program where someone would go to the home of a blind person to conduct the test. Um, because right now, there there is no accessibility option for the tests. So until there is, there ought to be some kind of program set up where a blind person could safely get a test and wouldn't have to take public transit or use a rideshare when they feel that they might be symptomatic of COVID. That wouldn't be at anyone's best interest. So, so that was one of the provisions of our request. Another provision of our request to the administration was that we, as blind individuals, be involved in the testing um, and evaluating of such a home-based test. So, it's um, kind of about the "nothing about us without us" philosophy. Um, we can help determine if, if. What a scientist is thinking, oh, this will work. Well, how do you know it's going to work unless you talk with and work with blind people who can tell you that it works? So that was one of the provisions also of our letter, um, asking for accessibility and to work with industry to make these tests accessible because the government is investing like $1.5 billion with a B. Um, in purchasing these home-based tests for distribution to residents of the United States. So, that's a huge investment of federal money, and there's no reason why blind people should be excluded from that program. And right now, in, in all essence, we are excluded um, without gaining sighted assistance to help us use the tests. So, that happened on the 21st of um, January. On the 27th of January, the the White House Office of Public Engagement held a monthly disability um, forum call that they've been doing for the last several months. And they talked about COVID and COVID resources. And at the very end of the call, they said that um, letters had been received um, at, with the Biden administration from advocacy organizations about the lack of accessibility of home-based COVID tests and that they, the Office of Public Engagement was pleased to announce that the Biden administration was responding to those correspondence, and that they were referring this issue to the National Institute of Health to take action and develop an accessible home-based test. So, so, we were pleased about that, um, and then on the 31st of January, Dan Spoon, our president of ACB, um, sent a letter to the acting director of the National Institute of Health, kind of reiterating the same messaging that we had in, um, in our letter to the Biden administration, talking about wanting to be part of the, the testing process before anything is released, um, to give feedback that we need these tests, it's essential for the health of blind and visually impaired people. And so we haven't specifically determined yet who at the National Institute of Health is going to be responsible for it. We think that it's some somewhere within the 27 institutes that comprise the National Institute of Health. There is, um, there is an institute called the the National Institute of Bio um, Medicine and um, and Engineering. So they seem to do a lot of work with home based tests, and so we think that that may be the department. And we put in an inquiry to find out who's responsible for this task, who's been charged with it, so that we'll be able to communicate and work with them directly. So um, so that is. That's kind of the story, and not so small in a nutshell. I would say it was <laughs> pretty detailed, but, um, you know, because this program offers the the free tests, that sort of elevated this to a lot of federal money is being spent, and there's no reason that people who are blind or visually impaired should be left out. There's also programs going on now with free masks at pharmacies around the country and other distribution points like medical clinics and things like that so there's a lot of different initiatives that are you know out there happening right now. Um, another positive element I think comes from the Justice Department in the last two or three weeks. they've issued several um settlement announcements about the the necessity for organizations like Kroger and Rite Aid and Meyer Groceries, um, the chain, for um, them to have an accessible COVID home test ordering site and for vaccinations and appointments as well. In the early days, many, many people who are blind and visually impaired had a lot of trouble scheduling a vaccine appointment, even getting a vaccine appointment, booster shot appointments, because of accessibility issues with websites. So I'm glad to see that the Justice Department has stepped out and really made it a priority to to have those various sites that have had these websites with lack of accessibility, to really make it a point that they need to create access for our community to be able to schedule their appointments. and. And get access to the medical treatment that everyone else has access to. So there's been quite a lot going on in in the last um, four to six weeks around the whole aspect of accessibility, where it touches on in various ways upon COVID and testing and vaccination and and all those different things. So,
1: well, it, it seems to me that this is a really uh, kind of a good example of how advocacy can can uh, can kind of drag along, drag and drag and drag, and you think, boy, we're really not getting very far. It, it almost doesn't matter what the topic is. Um, there, you know, wanting, asking for change, asking for things to be accessible, can just seem to take forever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think we can come up with a number of examples where that would be true. And then all of a sudden something happens, something that gets a lot of attention, and that particular issue just seems to take off. And this is sort of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Maybe out of this issue, this, this COVID issue, which is certainly a big problem in, and, uh, you know, has been here. Who would have thought we'd be talking about this two years after it started? Um, but, uh, you know, perhaps, and, and and you may not think this is especially true, but it would seem to me that this has brought a lot of attention to the need for accessible home testing. And maybe, if we're lucky, and actually, it, it's not luck, it's if we keep the pressure on in other areas and other types of tests, maybe we will be successful in getting some additional accessibility and other types of home tests for other medical issues. Do, do you see that as a possibility? I,
2: I absolutely do because part of what we've been saying is that um, with, some, you know, with some thought given to accessibility, we think that this is very doable. Um, Last year, Royal National Institute of Blind People, RNIB, um, did some work with um, a couple um, pharmaceutical companies to create an accessible um, pregnancy test. Now, pregnancy tests are not a new thing. They've been around, you know, the home-based pregnancy test, I would say, for maybe 40 years or so, Um, and they're very simple. They're, again, it's... You know, I kind of uh, attribute all of these home-based tests as kind of science experiments because <laughs> if you do A plus B, then the results are C. So it's very scientific. Um, the, the accessible pregnancy test that RNIB has worked on is um, a, it's a, it's a variable that has a, a little battery comp- component to it that reads the test results. And provides an accessible um, response so that you know when it has Braille and large print and electronic instructions. And it's mm-hmm. a it's a separate order. You wouldn't go into the pharmacy and buy an accessible pregnancy test, but you can order it um, on the market, and it costs about twenty to twenty five dollars. Now, a regular pregnancy test costs maybe, um, but probably no more than ten dollars. It's been a while since I needed a pregnancy test, so I don't know <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, the so there is that example out there now of an accessible home based test, and you know most of us have probably had um or heard of people there's there's advertising on television about kidney function tests and Kohler for for um diagnosing other kinds of of um conditions and that's probably just the the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure there are other types of tests that are medically just much more efficient and convenient for people to do from home. And you know, I am very hopeful that if if we can get the pharmaceutical industry and the National Institutes of Health and the FDA all engaged in in thinking about accessibility for people with disabilities, that that this is going to go way beyond just a a COVID home test and will impact other types of medical testing down the road.
1: Right. And if we can demonstrate uh, through the COVID testing that making things accessible is doable, is possible, practical... All these things, um, and, uh, and and that it can then be um, be kind of transferred over to other types of tests. Uh, you know, some real good will come out of all this.
2: Absolutely. You know,
1: Kim, I was thinking as you were talking about, uh, you know, you writing the letters and getting the uh, response uh, from the White House and from others. I'm sure you can think of instances over the years as I can of how long it can and how impossible it is sometimes to get a response to anything like this and just the uh, the feelings of urgency with covid um, you know there's a lot of bad things about this pandemic, but there are some good things and um, this is an example of something good that can come out of something that's not so good. I,
2: I totally um, agree. I totally yeah. agree. It's I mean, who would have thought that we would write a letter to the White House and six days <laughs> later we would have a Get response,
1: response. I mean, Exactly I
2: that, <laughs> that told us that it's being, you know, it's being done. It will be done. It was very positive. It was it's being referred to the National Institute of Health. They have a division that does this kind of work, and we're working on it now. That was pretty, you know, <laughs> positive feedback for six days in government. Tim, I mean, you don't normally. It ought,
1: it ought to take you six months just to find out which office, and then eight of us going to go to. <through. laughs> exactly.
2: So, so you know, I'm I'm really pleased with the the efforts of um, all kinds of advocacy organizations. NFB's been right there. They're doing some testing right now. They've acquired all the tests on the market and are analyzing, you know, which ones actually work. Um, And they've, so far in their research, they've identified that there is one test that is technically accessible. Um, Of course, it happens to be the most expensive one on the market. It it requires... It requires a sort of a cartridge bay that you plug a cartridge in after you've taken your sample. Um, the cartridge adapter, um, it costs $400. The test costs oh, $75. So, you know, I don't think that's going to be the test, although we did float that as a possible idea that to say the government could buy people who are blind this test um, because it's accessible now. Um, if that's what they choose to do, or they could make one of the home-based tests accessible. This is a home-based mm-hmm. test, but it's got this um, cartridge component that plugs in, and then you you take the test, which is a, some kind of a little cartridge. I haven't seen it because it costs four hundred dollars. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, and and then you get your results back. So it might take some modification, but it's it's almost there. It's just that it's. 475 dollars for a covid test and $75 for every test after that.
1: So the so, cartridge is reusable. Yeah. The $400 up part of it is reusable. That's right.
2: It's not 475 every time. It's 75 uh-huh. each time after you have to after after the initial purchase of the of the cartridge that reads the results. Right. Um, right. So so it's kind of interesting an interesting concept. It's very different from most of the other tests, um, on the market.
3: Mm-hmm. But,
2: um, so that was one idea that was floated, which was to to get anyone who needed one who was blind, you know, this more expensive test. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's been floated out there, too, but, you know, they're spending yeah. an awful lot of money. Oh, and yeah. If, and if they do, um, any kind of program guidance to the states and counties and, and local municipalities, health departments, saying, if there's a blind person in your community who needs a, a COVID home test, you need to go do it and provide, you know, resources for for that to happen. That's going to cost a lot of money, too. So oh, you are kidding. <laughs> you can just bet that, you know, they're going to compare um, providing money to the states and cities and towns um, over, you know, purchasing perhaps this more expensive test or, um, plus making a less expensive test accessible. So, all of those things are going to be on the table, and it'll be interesting to see where this goes in the next um, couple months while they're working on, hopefully, a solution that won't take too long.
1: Well, Kim, this has been really interesting. Um, Obviously, we are not at the end of the story. So, you know, if if you've been listening to this today, stay tuned for... Uh, more chapters, they are I, to come. I'm I think sure. there are more
2: chapters to come. And let me just repeat one more time the okay. information to get your, um, your f- four free um, COVID home-based tests and the inaccessible tests, but they're free. So, And you have a right to get them just like everybody else who's ordering them. So you can order them on online at the website covidtest.com. Dot gov. C O V I D T E S T S dot gov. And the phone number to reach them and order is 1 800 232 0233. So that's 1 800 232 0233. And one
1: point we might make is if, if you think, oh, I won't need them, I'm not going to order. I don't need them. There's just one of me, and I don't need them. Go on and order them, because you don't know when someone else may need them. Absolutely, you, you might be able to help somebody else out. So uh, they're going to be given out, and whether you are interested personally or not, go on and get those tests, and you might can can help can help a friend or help somebody who. Maybe got their four tests but now they need another one.
2: Yes. You
1: know? There's nothing magic about four tests except that's just what they're gonna That's
2: pass that's out. the number they decided to send out, because you usually if you if you get COVID and you know the, the this period can be five to ten days, you mm-hmm. you want to have another test at the end when um so that you can test negative and feel like you, you're okay again, you know, so right. So so there's always like two tests in the package. The first time you test positive, okay. Then you want that second test so that you can test negative and feel like maybe you can go back out to the grocery store with your mask on, you know, so that's important as well to, to have that closure that you're not contagious, so. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll be happy to come back when there's more to report and tell you the next chapter on this advocacy issue that ACB is so involved in. But thank you for having me come
0: and share. Page
1: three. Our first speaker that we're going to have, and we're always happy that uh, he takes time out of his busy schedule to meet with us and uh, discuss issues, but uh, is going to be counsel, uh, Councilman Howlander, he is from the 9th District. Thank you, uh, Bill, for meeting with us tonight.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I see Dee Pregliasco is here, who I I know, I guess, is going to talk about um, uh, uh, redistricting maybe in general, but uh, also at the state uh, level, where she has been involved very deeply. But I'll just, just in general, so I, excuse me. Uh, so I'll sort of set all of this up. Uh, basically, every government at almost every level is involved in the process of redistricting after new census data comes out. So the census was in 2020, um, and we got the data and, and uh, are required, really, in Louisville Metro and pretty much around the country to reapportion and redistrict so that uh, you try to keep. All of the districts reasonably similar in terms of the number of population. And that happens in, in cities. It certainly happened in local metro. I'll talk a little bit about that happens, uh, at the state level. Uh, I'm actually going to be represented by a, a different state representative, uh, a different state senator, uh, and, uh, my metro council district Remains the same, but I'm not running for re-election, so I'll be, re- rec- I'll be uh, uh, represented by a different Metro Council member also. This is also happening, of course, at the, at the federal level, so all around the country. Uh, it's something that's required. In Louisville Metro, uh, the effect of this has been, you know, this is the second time that we've redistricted um, Louisville Metro Council districts since uh, the merged government, the consolidated local government, was formed. And what we have found in each of the census is that the population has moved to the eastern portion of the county. And in some cases, some sections of of western Louisville have actually lost population. And certainly eastern portions of the county have gained a lot of population. So uh, what that means is, in general, that the districts have to move to the east. And in, in, uh, in, uh, 2010 or after the 2010 census, uh, my predecessor's district included, uh, most of Butchertown, all of Irish Hill. Uh, a lot of that was lost and, and those neighborhoods really got uh, divided up, uh, after 2010 as the district moved east and, and district nine picked up some more precincts in, uh, in uh, St. Matthews and other uh, suburban cities. And the same thing has happened here. Now, one thing we did uh, do or try to do at the, at the council level uh, was to keep neighborhoods together as best we could. So all of Butchertown now is gone from District 9. It's in District 4. It's a district that has downtown and further to the west. Uh, but uh, Irish Hill, a smaller uh, neighborhood, we were actually at a able to pick up all of Irish Hill. So we've kept that neighborhood all together now in District 9. Uh, so we actually added a few people there to make it uh, uh, part of District 9. Uh, we were not able to do that with uh, Clifton Heights. So Clifton Heights has been uh, split. Uh, it's interesting. That you sort of, if you look at the maps as to what the Clifton Heights neighborhood is, uh, it really kind of wasn't split, but Clifton Heights Is actually as a neighborhood association serves more than what's on the map for Clifton Heights. So the, so what is served by the Clifton Heights neighborhood is split. So the practical effect of this, and I've certainly had lots of conversations with people, particularly in Clifton Heights about this, is the the practical effect of it for local government is that, you know, you're going to be represented by somebody different if your district has moved. And you know, you get letters from them saying, "So what? What? You know, what does this mean for my services and my taxes?" And and the answer is, it doesn't mean anything. It does mean that you're represented by somebody else, and that when you go to the polls, you're going to be voting in a different in a different district. Debbie, I've got just uh, just one more comment, if I can. Um, sure. And and certainly, uh, you know, there are just some really egregious examples of of really bad policy. I will say one happy thing here or one comment about uh, the opportunity that new representatives give you. And that's my seat, not because of redistricting, but because I'm retiring. Uh, But it's also, you may find that like me, you have a different state Senator or different state representative. You will never have a better opportunity to tell the people who are going to represent you what's important to you and what's important to your community and I always talk about Bill Wright uh, telling me sidewalks uh, when I was running and how I remember that you will never have a better opportunity to make your voice heard and be heard than when people are out campaigning. So, uh, you know, w- when, when folks are asking for your vote, if they're particularly if they're new, new representatives and, and, uh, you know, campaigning a little harder maybe than, a, than an incumbent, um, you know, make your voice heard. You'll get that opportunity, certainly in District Nine if you live here, uh, but in many other areas around around the state also with this new redistricting. Dave Weldy, you can go ahead and ask your question.
1: Yes, I wanted to ask the state phone number for the
3: legislatures, please. The number. Uh, let me. Let me. The number is three eight hundred three seven two seven one eight one. People who answer those phones are really, really. Uh, terrific public servants. They will be very uh, nice to you. Uh, it, it, it helps if you have the bill number that you're interested in, but you don't have to. And you know, you can. They will look up information as to who represents you if you give addresses. If you call, you know, frequently, they'll remember you uh, because they've got a database with you. And so, it's it's a it's a great way to make your voice heard. 800-372-7181 Because this is important. Uh, there's actually a special election in that district that, that, uh, Reggie Meeks is, is, re, is retiring from or has retired from. And that election is in February and the deadline actually for seeking an absentee ballot in that election is coming up next week. So oh. if, 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 if you want to know anything about that, let me know, let me know. I'll be happy to, you know, how to reach me or, uh, you know, you go to the Jefferson County Clerk essentially, and request an absentee ballot. Um, but but uh, there is a special election this month in February for for Reggie Meeks' seat. He has resigned, so you are not currently represented in the State House. This is Debbie.
1: Did you say, uh, Bill, that the uh, will things change with voting? Did you say that some polling, uh, people's polling places change?
3: Uh, no. Uh, okay. Th- 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 not necessarily. Now we, we did, uh, as part of Louisville Metro, we did split some precincts. So, uh, that will require when this whole process is done. And my understanding is the county clerk is waiting until the sort of state maps are finalized, uh, in drawing a few new precincts. So there, you know, it's, it's possible that, that, that there will be new polling locations. Nothing has been announced about any of that at this point.
1: You know it's important. We keep saying it. it's important for everybody to get to know their council person, the one that represents you wherever you
3: live. Absolutely agree with that, and I'll I'll just repeat what I said at the beginning. You'll never get a better opportunity to get their ear uh, than when they're knocking on your door asking for your <laughs> vote, or showing up, or, or showing up at a forum, or you know, mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I, it, 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 advocacy should. Certainly continue while somebody is in office, but it should begin while people are running for office because they remember those kind of things. Thank you. Thank you all.
0: If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org.